Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. This week, the study guide is going to be exploring the life and times of Queen Anne of England. We're going to be sipping some tea, both figurative and literal, because I'm drinking a really nice English breakfast tea in honor of her reign, which saw some big expansion of English international power. In history class, Anne probably doesn't come up at all unless your teacher is either super into Olivia Coleman or the creation of the United Kingdom. But her life is pretty fun. Her study guide involves racehorses, a flawed escape plan, bad eyesight, and as is usual for the Stuarts, some fun sexual decisions. Let's begin. Queen Anne is born February 6th, 1665, in St. James Palace in London, England. She is the second and last surviving daughter of the future King James II and his first wife, Anne Hyde. Anne is born right before England's plague years, so it really is a miracle that she survives childhood at all. Anne is going to be the last fully English monarch, aka the last English monarch who has two English parents until Elizabeth II. So that's a fun fact to remember. Also, as a fun side note, while Anne Hyde is giving birth to Anne, she's only in labor for about an hour which is pretty incredible, even by modern standards. By the time Anne is born, her parents' relationship is pretty much down the tubes. As a reminder, Anne and James's relationship had been controversial from the get-go because Anne is neither a noble or a royal, and she was pregnant when the two got married, so a lot of people, including James, think that Anne Hyde had tricked him into marrying her. By the time Anne is born, James is off constantly cheating on Anne Hyde, and Anne Hyde has probably already secretly converted to Catholicism. Not that our hero Anne is going to know any of this. When she's three, both of her brothers die, which means that her older sister Mary is suddenly third in line to the English throne, and Anne is fourth, which is quite the promotion for a toddler. It's also around this time that her grandfather, Edward Hyde, the Earl of Clarendon, is banished to France after the failure that is the Second Anglo-Dutch War, and pretty soon after that, Anne herself is going to be sent to the French court in an attempt to find a cure for her watering eyes. It doesn't work. Anne is always going to have fairly bad eyesight. When Anne is in France, she first is sent to live with her grandmother, Henrietta Marie, but then her grandmother dies, and Anne is sent to live with her aunt, Henriette. But then her aunt also dies. Her aunt may or may not have been poisoned by her husband, Philippe, and Philippe's male lover. Now that both her grandmother and aunt are dead, toddler Anne is sent back to England with some still pretty awful eyesight. By the time she's back in England, 
Both of her parents are Catholics, which means that she can't be raised by them. It's going to look really, really bad if the Protestant princess of England is raised by two rabid Catholics. Not that it matters that much, because a few years later, when Anne is six, her mother, Anne Hyde, dies of breast cancer. Between Anne Hyde's cancer and the Catholicism, Anne doesn't spend that much time with her mother. In the little time that they do spend together, Anne Hyde is apparently affectionate, borderline smothering on her daughter to the point where she will overfeed Anne. This will have quite a bit of trauma later on for Anne in life. It seems like she did create some sort of link in her head between maternal affection and overfeeding. After her mother dies, Anne does fall ill. She becomes sort of sickly and delicate, and everyone's afraid that she's going to die, which won't do at all, because then only Mary will be available as an heir. There won't be a spare anymore. Charles II is like, nope, this can't happen, so he sends both Mary and Anne to live in the countryside at Richmond Palace and to be raised by the very, very Protestant Villiers family. Both of these things work. Living in the country around Richmond Palace really hugely helps Anne's health. She goes from being this delicate, sickly child to being known for her health, being known for being happy and plump. Anne is also going to be known for being extremely devout to the Anglican faith. Anne doesn't have a great education. She doesn't know how to read or write Greek or Latin. She can barely read and write English and French. But the one thing that she does have is a huge love for the Church of England. However, while she's being educated by the Villiers family, Anne is going to start developing some questionable relationships with the women around her. And this is going to be a theme throughout Anne's life. First of all, there's Frances Apsley, her big sister's BFF. Mary is not thrilled that her irritating little sister is now best friends with her best friend. Mary apparently is super, super jealous of any time that Frances and Anne hang out together, and it doesn't help that Anne keeps calling herself Frances's husband. That's Mary's role, gosh darn it. As a result, Anne and Mary are never going to have the greatest relationship. Mary's known for being chatty and easygoing and friendly, whereas Anne is much more quiet and a little bit more stubborn. And then we have the classic big sister, little sister thing, where Mary loves finding reasons to criticize Anne, and Anne is like, can you please stop? Thank you very much. The two sisters are never going to be that close. It's also while she's at the Villiers that Anne may or may not meet a woman who's going to be really important in her later life, Sarah Jennings. Sarah Jennings is definitely living with the Villiers at this point in time, but it's unknown slash unlikely if she and Anne became BFFs just yet. In the early 1670s, once her mother is dead, James gets remarried. 
I've talked a lot about his second wife, Mary of Modena, so I'm not going to really go into that much more detail about her here, except the fact that Mary of Modena and Anne are never really going to be close friends because of the whole Mary of Modena being Catholic and Anne being very, very Anglican. This distance between the two women is definitely going to have ramifications for both of them later on. In 1675, things are going to start changing for Anne. This is the year that she becomes good friends with Sarah Jennings. So let's talk a little bit about Sarah Jennings. Sarah Jennings comes from a lesser noble family. Her father is a member of parliament and her big sister had been a lady-in-waiting for Anne's mother, Anne Hyde. Sarah is about five years older than Anne and is living with the Villiers family and quasi-serving as a lady-in-waiting for Mary of Modena. When Anne is about 10 years old and Sarah is about 15, the two become friends. Why would a 15-year-old become friends with a 10-year-old? Easy. The 10-year-old is high in the line of succession to be the next monarch of England, and Sarah Jennings is no fool. Compounding this, around the same time that Sarah and Anne become close, Sarah meets one John Churchill, who by then is doing really well for himself both in the English army and in terms of sleeping with various royal mistresses. A few years later, Anne's life is going to change yet again, because in 1677, her big sister Mary gets married to their cousin William of Orange. Anne is unable to attend the wedding because she has smallpox. This is devastating for both her and Mary, because even though the sisters weren't especially close, you still do want to be at your big sister's wedding to your guys' cousin. Mary and Anne aren't even able to see each other before Mary leaves for the Netherlands because William was afraid that she would get smallpox and force them to leave as soon as possible. Right around the time that Mary marries William, Sarah Jennings also gets married. She and John Churchill secretly marry, which causes quite the scandal because they did not ask anyone for permission, which is what you're supposed to do. After Mary's marriage and move to the Netherlands, Anne mostly just hangs out in England. She's being a good Protestant princess. She's continuing her education in the Anglican church. She's hanging out with her various step-siblings, none of whom are living past infancy. And she's watching all the drama of the popish plot and exclusion crisis unfold around her. While Anne does not like Catholics due to her education, she also is a firm believer in royal power, so she doesn't support the various attempts to remove her dear old dad from the English line of succession. In addition to keeping abreast of all the various political drama, Anne does get a chance to travel a bit. She's going to go visit the Dutch Republic in 1679 to visit her big sister, and when James and Mary of Modena have to briefly leave England in response to the popish plot, she's going to visit them in both Belgium and Scotland. When Anne visits Scotland, there is huge crowds that come to visit her, and apparently the Scots really like her. 
a year after that in 1680, Anne begins dipping her toe in the marriage market. William tries to set up a marriage between Anne and George of Hanover. William's friendly with George's mom, Sophia of Hanover, and he thinks a marriage between Anne and George would help the various Protestant causes in England as well as mainland Europe. However, this relationship goes nowhere. Anne and George do meet and are aggressively uninterested in each other, which maybe is for the best given what ends up happening to George I's actual wife, Sophia Dorothea. And then in 1683, when Anne is 18, she gets caught up in a little bit of a scandal because she may or may not have been seduced by one Lord Mulgrave. It's unclear if anything physical happened between the two, but Lord Mulgrave is immediately dismissed from court. Pretty soon after this whole scandal, Anne ends up marrying Prince George of Denmark, the younger brother of the King of Denmark. George of Denmark is known to be very nice and very harmless, but not exactly the brightest bulb in the box. Charles II said it best, as he often does. Quote, I have tried him drunk, and I have tried him sober, but there is nothing in him. Despite George's lack of intelligence, he and Anne got along pretty well, and they're seen as being a really sweet couple who everyone loved. The only person who didn't love Anne and George was William of Orange. He was worried that George might have more precedence over him in English court because George is actually a prince, whereas William's position as stadtholder of the Netherlands is a little bit more questionable. And William's also worried that George is going to ally with Louis XIV because Denmark and France traditionally have been friends, but really, William doesn't need to worry. George isn't going to get involved with anything. Like I said, George and Anne have a really great relationship. They end up having 19 children. But tragically, 14 of those 19 children are stillborn. And of the five who survive pregnancy, only one is going to live past infancy, William the Duke of Gloucester. But even he is going to die in childhood, which is completely devastating for Anne. Anne ends up spending 13 out of the 25 years of her marriage pregnant. Due to her many, many pregnancies, Anne ends up putting on quite a bit of weight and really struggles to get rid of it. By the time she's queen, she's going to be massively overweight, as well as suffering from rheumatism and gout, which means that for a large portion of her life, she's going to be in near constant pain. Despite that, she does a good job of putting on a cheerful face and acting happy. Anne's marriage doesn't just change her relationship to George. She also starts becoming much closer to Sarah Churchill. After the wedding, she appoints Sarah to be her lady of the bedchamber, and the two become close friends. There's, of course, historic debate over this friendship. Were the two just friends, or were they secretly lesbian lovers? Well, James II did tell Anne to cool it 
with the whole friendship with Sarah Churchill because the two were too close and too passionate. And Sarah and Anne gave each other cute little pet names like Mrs. Morley and Mrs. Freeman in order to be able to talk to each other like equals. We have no hard and fast evidence to say whether or not their relationship went beyond the platonic. The nearest thing we have to that is a memoir by Sarah Churchill written after the fact, and this memoir is after she and Anne had fallen out, so not the most reputable source. I personally think, yeah, they probably were lovers. Why wouldn't? Like, there's nothing in the record that says they weren't. Um, in their relationship, Sarah definitely was the dominant partner. She had a reputation for being really lively and witty, whereas Anne was quieter and a little bit slower to catch the joke. Besides hanging out with Sarah Churchill and dealing with these many, many pregnancies, Anne is also going to get decently caught up in the drama of her dad's reign. Once James comes to the throne, Anne is going to be third in line for the throne after her big sister Mary, so she has a reason to care about what's going on in England, and of course, she completely loathes Catholics. Once James becomes king, he starts to seriously push Anne to convert to Catholicism, and Anne keeps refusing, which causes a breach in the father-daughter relationship. Anne becomes genuinely afraid that James is either going to declare Mary and Anne illegitimate so that they can't inherit the throne, or pass a law without parliament that says that only Catholics are allowed to inherit the throne. By 1687, she's so worried about her future in the country that she keeps begging her father to be allowed to visit Mary in the Dutch Republic. James says, no, you're staying in England with me. And once she's stuck in England, she's like, fine, screw you, dad. I'm not going to hang out with you at the royal court. She ends up retiring to a house of her own, which leads to a pretty big falling out with both James and Mary of Modena. From this point forward, Anne just doesn't care about her father. She's not going to be supporting him. And we can really see this with the final pregnancy of Mary of Modena in 1688. When Anne finds out that Mary of Modena is pregnant and the pregnancy is going well, she is absolutely furious and promptly starts spreading all sorts of fun rumors like the fact that Mary of Modena may or may not have been sleeping with one of James's friends. Anne isn't content to keep these rumors just to England. She also spreads them via letter to Mary and by extension, William. As the pregnancy continues, Anne leaves London and decides to spend a few months in Bath because that means she won't be present for the birth and won't be able to say, oh yeah, the baby is totally James and Mary's. It works. After Mary of Modena gives birth to a healthy baby boy, Anne continues to spread rumors that she hadn't heard or seen the baby cry because she wasn't there, so for all she knew, the baby could have been born dead and a fake baby could have been smuggled in to take its place. She also refuses to read and sign off on depositions about the matter because they aren't necessary. Wow, Anne. Majorly petty.
and Anne isn't going to back down because in November 1688, as we all remember, William comes over to England in what's known as the Glorious Revolution. Surprise, surprise, Anne is going to leave her father and join up with William. In fact, in early November, before William even leaves the Dutch Republic for England, Anne writes him a pretty long letter explaining why she's going to choose William's side. When she writes this letter, she's still technically living with her dad, which is more than a little awkward. In the end, Anne chooses William's side. And she doesn't choose it because she likes William. She purely chooses it for religious reasons. Because when it comes down to it for Anne, it's all about the church. Anne's defection is completely devastating for James. When he finds out that Anne has joined up with William, he bursts into tears. In fairness to James, he was incredibly high on opiates at the time. That being said, Anne's little escape to, jo to go join up with William doesn't go super great. She and Sarah Churchill are staying at Whitehall Palace at the time, and the two decide to flee together. However, in the process, they get a little lost, no one knows where they are, and rumors start spreading that both of them have been killed by Catholics, which creates all sorts of drama in London. Spoiler alert, Anne was not killed. Anne was fine. She was just slightly lost. Once she's found and she's safe, Anne's like, cool guys, can I go to bed? But no, she has to go to a giant banquet where everyone's cheering on her and William. Once Anne is safely in William's company, she's pretty cold about the entire glorious revolution thing. Especially in contrast to Mary, who keeps crying and having breakdowns brought on by guilt. In fact, when Anne finds out that her dad had fled to France, she's like, okay, whatever, and continues the card game she was in the middle of. She's going to be very low-key about everything up until the coronation of William and Mary. And we've covered a lot of information about Anne so far, so I'm going to do a quick little recap. Anne's childhood involved a lot of bouncing around. First, she went to France in a failed attempt to fix her eyes. Then she came back to England, and her mother almost promptly died of cancer. Then she was sent to live with a very Protestant Villiers family because her dad's a Catholic, and Anne has to be a good Anglican. As it turns out, Anne is going to be a great Anglican. She doesn't have much else of an education, but she is going to love the Church of England, which is going to cause a bit of a wedge between her her dad, and her dad's new wife, Mary of Modena. Anne's life is fairly low-key for most of her childhood and teenage years, although she does have a habit of being a little too intimate with female ladies of waiting. In 1677, Anne's only surviving sibling, Mary, gets married and leaves Anne all alone in England. At this time, Anne takes her comfort with the slightly older noblewoman Sarah Jennings, and the two become BFFs until Sarah Jennings also gets married to John Churchill. After this, Anne gets into a bit of trouble. She may or may not get seduced, which means she then has to go off and get married to the Prince of Denmark, George. Luckily for Anne, she and George get along really well. 
so well that they have 19 children. Tragically, only one of those children is going to survive infancy. While all this is going on, in addition to becoming ever closer to Sarah Jennings' Did They or Didn't They Fuck, that's one of history's greatest mysteries, Anne is also having to deal with the reign of her dear old dad, James II. Anne is not a fan of her dad. She does not like that he's a Catholic, and the two ultimately have a pretty massive falling out over the religion thing. When the Glorious Revolution comes around in 1688-1689, Anne is going to side with William and Mary. She's ultimately going to defect from James and join William. So yeah, that's Anne's life so far. She's now firmly on William and Mary's side, and we're going to have a fun new king and queen. I'm also going to take a break to do our first ever promo. I'm super excited for it. One, first promo, and two, I really do love the podcast I'm going to be promoting. I know I sound all eye-rolly and like I wear a lot of black eyeliner, which I do even though I suck at putting it on, but deep down I'm a massive baby and I get scared by spooky stuff so easily. Literally the only horror movies I can watch are the Scream horror movies and stuff by Jordan Peele. But that being said, I utterly adore the W Files. Even though they cover spooky stuff, they're so funny and so charming that I can put my fears aside and laugh along. You highly suggest it, just maybe not right before bed. Here's their amazing promo. How do you feel about witches? How about aliens? or maybe some messed up government experiments. If you have a fascination with the weird, wild, wacky, or just downright what the f**k <laughs> things that go on in this world of ours, then you've come to the right place. Join us on Tuesdays when we discuss all of this and more on the W Files Podcast. To listen and find out more, you can pop on over to our website at wfilespodcast.com. Adieu, W Crew! So yeah, definitely check them out. You won't regret it. Let's come back to Queen Anne. Like I said, William and Mary are about to become the first and only joint rulers of England. Anne's relationship with William and Mary should be really good. After all, Mary's her sister, all of them are good at being Protestant, and after their king and queen, it's Anne's turn to have the throne of England. However, the relationship isn't so great. Anne has a bit of an attitude towards William. She feels like he stole her spot on the throne. After all, it was supposed to go Mary, then Anne, then William, because William did have a claim of the throne to his own, thanks to the whole being a cousin thing. And now it's William Mary, then Anne. Anne got leapfrogged over, and she's more than a little salty about it. She also thinks William just isn't fun. Remember how he had that strong accent and the asthma so he didn't talk that much? Yeah, Anne isn't a fan of that. She's going to give William some really, really cute nicknames, like the Dutch abortion in Caliban, after the Shakespeare character from The Tempest. And Anne isn't just going to be picking at William. At Mary's coronation, Anne's going to make this super passive-aggressive comment about how tired Mary looks, which is 
so beautifully petty in a way that only a little sister can be. Once William and Mary are on the throne, the tension between the siblings is going to heat up. Anne wants nicer housing and more money. She demands a house of her own at Richmond because, one, she's pregnant, and two, she's the queen's sister and heir. She deserves fancy things like that. She starts demanding more and more money and a larger and larger household budget because of the whole heir to the throne thing and also because she had gambling debts that she needed to pay off. William and Mary do their best to push against this, but it's going to be a source of tension between the three of them. However, Mary and Anne are going to continue to get along decently whenever William is off on campaign, which isn't infrequent. Anne will move in with Mary, and the two will co-host a ton of banging parties together. Anne also feels like William just doesn't respect George, which... Yeah, William probably didn't respect George because no one respects George. However, she also gets annoyed when William takes George on the Irish campaign for the Battle of the Boyne. So, the next year in 1691, William doesn't take George on a military campaign with him. But Anne is still mad because she feels like William is snubbing George. And then William gets upset and is like, hey, what do you want me to do? All of this tension comes to a boiling point in 1692, and it's over Sarah Churchill, of course. Basically, Sarah Churchill's husband, Army General John Churchill, is in prison. For the last few years, John feels like William hasn't been using him enough and is relying too much on Dutch generals. So, John Churchill, being a total genius, had gotten involved in a possible Jacobite plot against William, got caught, and got thrown in prison. However, Anne is still super close to Sarah. Sarah is still Anne's main lady-in-waiting. Mary's like, hey little sister, um, it's kind of awkward for your BFF and main lady-in-waiting to be married to a guy who's in prison for treason. Can you maybe fire Sarah temporarily? And Anne freaks out and says, no, absolutely not. And to make matters worse, Anne keeps bringing Sarah to court and rubbing the friendship into Mary's face. It culminates on Anne's birthday when Mary yet again is like, hey sis, can you maybe not bring your treasonous friend to court? And Sarah's like, fuck you, Mary. I'm going to leave court and hang out with Sarah Churchill instead. And Anne keeps her word. She doesn't come back to the royal court for the rest of Mary's life. And whenever the two sisters run into each other in public, they don't speak. The only connection that Anne and Mary are going to have is via Prince George, because Prince George is friendly with everyone, and through Anne's only surviving son, because Mary is decently friendly with him. Pretty soon after this falling out with Mary, Anne gets robbed when coming home, which is super traumatic for her. Pretty soon after this robbery, she gives birth and the baby dies within an hour, which is one of the lowest points in Anne's life. The next year, in 1694, Mary dies of smallpox. At the time of Mary's death, Anne never had a chance to reconcile with her big sister, which in my opinion is really heartbreaking. 
However, she does manage to reconcile with William. Yes, the two don't really like each other, but both are completely devastated by Mary's death. And a few days after Mary dies, the two spend about an hour alone together, just talking, and whatever they talked about, it worked. Because Anne returns to court and starts acting as a hostess for William. William also allows the Churchills to come back to court, which probably helps. The closeness between Anne and William picks up a bit when the War of Spanish Succession starts out and William makes John Churchill his main general. After Mary's death, it becomes really clear that Anne is going to be queen at some point. And Anne's like, oh darn, if I'm queen, I need to know like queenly stuff. And thanks to my dad and uncle, I never really had an education. So Anne and George start getting close to educated people. They become really friendly with the keeper of the royal libraries. Anne starts reading history texts so she can know what mistakes not to make. And both she and George become friendly with people like Isaac Newton and John Evelyn. N.B.D. But then, in 1700, while Anne is preparing to someday become queen, her only surviving child, William the Duke of Gloucester, dies. William had never been a healthy child, he was born with hydrocephalus, and it seems likely that he wasn't the only one of Anne's children to be born with hydrocephalus. Most likely, hydrocephalus caused the death of several of Anne's children. As a result of his hydrocephalus, he had trouble walking and a bunch of other health issues, which led to his death at the age of 11 of pneumonia. William's death completely devastates Anne. And it doesn't just devastate Anne, it devastates England, because now Anne doesn't have an heir, so once William dies and Anne dies, who's going to be ruling England? Will Parliament finally let James's son with Mary of Modena come back and be king, even though he's Catholic? No, that's not going to happen. Instead, Parliament passes what's called the 1701 Act of Settlement, which says that the English monarch has to be Protestant. This means that after Anne, the throne will eventually go to the House of Hanover, led by Sophia of Hanover, because they are the nearest Protestant relations. For the rest of William's reign, Anne is going to continue educating herself. She's going to set herself up as very religious and very pro-Church of England. She wants to be a good Anglican queen in contrast to her father and her half-brother to keep people from being like, why don't we have James Edward come over and rule from France? She's going to work on charity work, like setting up funds to help poor clergy, and she's going to be the last member of the English royal family to use what's known as the royal touch to cure scrofula. Anne ends up getting the throne in March 1702 when her brother-in-law, William, dies. Anne is officially a crowned queen on April 23rd, 1702, and her coronation goes super well. Even though William was a perfectly competent ruler, he wasn't exactly popular in England because of the whole being Dutch thing and being kind of uptight thing and not spending that much time in England thing. So everyone's thrilled to have a 100% English monarch on 
the throne. On top of her coronation going well, when, in when Anne goes to open the Houses of Parliament in 1702, her opening speech is fabulously received, partially because Anne apparently had this amazing speaking voice. She famously says in this opening speech, as I know my heart to be entirely English, I can very sincerely assure you that there is not one thing you can expect or desire of me which I shall not be ready to do for the happiness or prosperity of England. And I think that really sums up Anne's reign. She's going to be doing a lot to try to improve England and make everyone in England happy. Will she be successful at it? Well, let's see. I think a big thing to remember as we're going over Anne's reign is that she's a woman in incredible physical pain for the vast majority of her reign. She's suffering from really serious gout, and by the end of her reign, thanks to the weight she has gained and from her gout, she basically can't walk, which makes me willing to cut her a little bit more slack. As queen, Anne is going to be fairly mixed in how involved she is on day-to-day -day governance. Yes, she is going to be relying quite heavily on advisors like Sidney Goldolphin and both John and Sarah Churchill, but she also is going to attend a lot of cabinet meetings and show up to parliamentary sessions in order to introduce, in order to influence legislation. Anne's actually the last English monarch to veto legislation that passed both Lords and Commons, which shows that she cared about the politics in England, and she wanted to have a say. When it came to politics, she tended to be a little bit more pro-Tory, because traditionally Tories support the monarchy and the Church of England, and Anne loves both those concepts, but she's not above changing sides in order to get what she wants. It's under Anne's reign that we're really going to see a rise in the concept of two-party politics in England. We're going to see both Whigs and Tories in control of Parliament. There's not going to be just one person running the show. The two major party leaders are going to be Sidney Goldolphin, a Whig, and Robert Harley, a Tory, and if you haven't seen The Favourite, you absolutely must, because Robert Harley is absolutely beautifully played by Nicholas Holt in a truly awe-inspiring performance. So what are going to be some of the policies that are eating up Anne's reign? First off, we have the War of Spanish Succession. Theoretically, yes, the War of Spanish Succession did start in William's reign, but the vast majority is going to be in Anne's reign. In case you forget the background details of the War of Spanish Succession, quick little recap. Basically, Charles II, who is crazy, is dying. He doesn't have an heir. He needs to give the massive Spanish empire to someone, and he ends up deciding to give it to his grandson, Philip, who is French. This is very unpopular because it's going to give a lot of land and power to France, and Charles technically had said he was going to give all the land to Charles of Austria. Everyone agrees not to fight because no one wants a war. 
But then, when James II dies in exile in France, Louis XIV decides to recognize his son, James Edward, as King of England instead of William, and England's like, oh fuck no, so war is declared in 1702. The players of the war are going to be France and Spain versus England and everyone else. The war isn't going to end until 1713 with the Treaty of Utrecht. I'm not really going to go into the military history of the War of Spanish Succession because, frankly, I don't care. There are a few big things, though, to know about the War of Spanish about the War of Spanish Succession. Number one, it is huge for John and Sarah Churchill. John Churchill is going to be the British general, and he's going to lead the army of England to some huge wins the biggest of which is going to be a victory at Blenheim, which is the first English win on European soil since Agincourt. Blenheim is such a big deal that Anne makes him the Duke of Marlborough. However, as the war drags on and on, Churchill is going to fall out of favor. The other big thing to remember about the War of Spanish Succession is that the British win control of the Isle of Gibraltar from Spain during this war, which is going to have some pretty huge ramifications for England. Because of the whole war thing, Anne is going to be having to take a much more active role in government than she might otherwise. And it's through this more active role that Anne's able to really start pushing for the Act of Union, aka uniting England and Scotland, aka creating Great Britain. This has been a concept since James I came onto the throne in 1603, and it finally becomes a reality 104 years later in 1707 with the Acts of Union. The big reason that England and the big reason why the Act of Union happens is because of the Act of Settlement. The Act of Settlement is only going to apply to England. Theoretically, after Anne dies, Scotland could have another king, and England doesn't really want that to happen. So for the first time, the English government is like, yeah, cool, Scotland's chill. We don't mind signing up and uniting with them. Scotland, meanwhile, is like, yeah, we don't know if we want to join with England because England might swallow us up and being independent's cool. But on the other hand, being tied to England does mean increased trade and colonial access, and we don't exactly want Catholics to take us over via some sort of Jacobite invasion, so fine. Ultimately, the Act of Union works, and in 1707, the independent kingdoms of England and Scotland become one united kingdom of Great Britain, with Ireland off doing its own separate and subordinate thing within the system. Within the United Kingdom of Great Britain, Scotland is definitely the unequal partner because it's so much smaller than England, but it does get to maintain its own legal, religious, and educational system, which makes the Scots very happy. I mean, who knows how much longer that will last. Hashtag Brexit. Hashtag remain. In 1708, right after the triumph of the Act of Union, 
Anne is going to have a personal decline because George is going to die, leaving Anne alone with Sarah Churchill. And sadly for Anne, Sarah isn't the nicest person you hang out with. She's snippy. She wants what she wants. She sometimes mocks Anne. So Anne starts befriending Sarah's cousin, Abigail Marsham, who's been in Anne's service since about 1704. Sarah is not happy about this and literally starts throwing tantrums, which leads to a bit of a falling out between the two former friends slash lovers, which is what the amazing film The Favorite is about. Seriously, if you haven't seen The Favorite, pause this podcast, go watch it. Okay, good. You watched it. Let's keep talking. And it's not just because of the temper tantrums that Anne and Sarah start having tension. It's also political issues. Sarah Churchill is incredibly pro-Whig, which Anne doesn't love because traditionally Whigs haven't been pro-royal power and Anne likes having royal power. Sarah is also very pro-continuing the War of Spanish Succession, but the war is rapidly becoming less and less popular. Abigail, on the other hand, is more pro-Tory. The Tories are anti-war because the Tories tend to own land, and land is what's getting taxed to pay for the war. Anne is also pro-Tory because of the whole absolute royal power thing that the Tories support, so the two become even closer. And it's not just Sarah and Abigail that are causing political drama. In 1709, we have this preacher, Henry Sackerville, who gives this really violent sermon where he attacks Whigs, and then he gets censored by Whig MPs. Turns out this was a bit of a mistake, because there are riots in Sackerville's support, which shows how sick the country is of the Whigs. The people are more and more pro-Tory, because they're more and more sick of the war, and the Tories are anti-war. By 1710, Parliament is majority Tory, and it's going to stay that way for most of the rest of the reign. The next year, Anne dismisses Sarah from court for good. So that's sort of the big political drama that Anne is dealing with, and she loses a friend over it, which is really sad. But there's some good stuff that's going on in England. We're going to see a growing rise of English commerce. A really great example of this, in my opinion, is the South Sea Company. The South Sea Company was founded in 1711 by our Tory friend, Robert Harley, to counter the power of the pro-Whig Bank of England. The South Sea Company gets a monopoly over all trade to the American colonies, aka Spanish colonies, in exchange for dealing with a debt from the War of Spanish Succession. This means that, in theory, the South Sea Company is going to be really powerful, and the South Sea Company will end up being super important later on in the 17-teens and 1720s, and is going to get involved in this whole messy land speculation bubble, but, like, this isn't an economics podcast, so we can leave it at that and sort of just use the South Sea Company as an example of how commerce is becoming more and more important in England. 
we also are going to see a continued cultural renaissance in England. We're going to see people like Alexander Pope, Daniel Defoe, and Jonathan Swift all putting out some really amazing work during Anne's reign. And lastly, we're going to see some cool stuff going on, randomly enough, in horse racing. Anne loves horse racing. As a child, she would apparently ditch out on tutoring sessions to go horse racing. And starting the year that she got married, she went to the Newmarket races every year. By the time she was queen, she couldn't physically horseback ride anymore, but she still loved horses. And in 1711, she establishes a new race course, the Ascot, and sets up a royal reward for whoever wins the course. That's right, Anne created the Royal Ascot, which still exists today and is like a big deal with a lot of giant hats. By 1713, Anne's health is taking a pretty serious decline, which is really sad for Anne, but luckily in terms of politics, things are starting to get a little bit more stable. The War of Spanish Succession ends that year with the Treaty of Utrecht. The Treaty of Utrecht forces Louis XIV in France to recognize the House of Hanover as the heir to England. This means that we're not going to have any French invasions of England to force James Edward Stuart, aka James III, onto the throne. England also gets the exclusive right to run the slave trade in the Americas, which is very exciting for English commerce, less exciting for basic human rights, but Spain gets to keep most of its colonial holdings in the Americas. While European territory itself doesn't really change hands, the war does lead to one big change. A decline in France as the biggest power in Europe. By the end of the war, France is massively overextended. Louis has taxed their budget to oblivion, and France didn't really win anything in exchange for all the fighting and all the death and all the money they've lost. The War of Spanish Succession shows Louis's growing weakness and shows that maybe France isn't quite as strong as everyone thought they were. There's a new player on the stage. England. And between 1713 and Napoleon, France isn't going to win another continental European war that they get involved in. And there are going to be a few wars that they get involved in. After the Treaty of Utrecht, Anne's decline is going to happen really, really fast. Which leads to quite a bit of debate in, the mem in Parliament over what to do. The Tories suddenly get cold feet over the whole giving the throne to the House of Hanover. After all, the House of Hanover is German. They are only distant cousins to Anne. There are other people with slightly better claims to the English throne, and that person's name is James Edward Stuart. Yes, he's Catholic, but maybe he'd be willing to convert to Anglicanism to become king, but it's a no-go. James Edward is unwilling to convert, and there's not a majority in Parliament that's willing to overturn the Act of Settlement. For a hot second, it looks like this might lead to a bit of a political crisis in England. Anne has to keep 
replacing ministers for the rest of her reign, she finally settles on Charles Talbot, the Duke of Shrewsbury, who was one of the immortal seven who brought William and Mary over and somehow is still alive. Talbot is pretty competent. He manages to ensure that the act of settlement is followed and that George of Hanover will in fact be the next king of England and that James Edward Stuart isn't going to randomly try to invade. Anne ended up dying on August 1st, 1714 of a stroke. She is only 49 at the time of her death. She's buried in Westminster Abbey. After her death, the Stuart line is replaced by the House of Hanover, starting with Anne's near husband, George I of Hanover, because sometimes life is like that. Now that we've covered all the English Stuarts, I thought it'd be fun to do a little bit of a final ranking of the Stuarts. This is just my own personal opinion of how I would rank them. If you disagree, let me know. You could email me at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com or you can tweet me at sadgirlstudypod. So here are my rankings. Number one, surprise, surprise, William and Mary. They're my bays. They're why I'm in grad school. I think they're fantastic. It's because of them that England becomes a constitutional monarchy. Yes, not super exciting, but they are really, really interesting. And I think a lot more research needs to be done about them. Number two, obviously, Charles II. I mean, he's so much fun. Even if he wasn't, like, that good of a king, just his personality and the truly epic amount of sex he had, he deserves it. And he did a good job as king. He brought the country back from the Civil War and the hot mess that was Oliver Cromwell. He stayed on the throne for 25 years. We don't see any rebellions, and we see a huge outpouring of culture, all of which are good things. Number three, I'm going to give it to Anne. As we saw in today's episode, she did a pretty good job as queen. She brought England through the War of Spanish Succession. Yes, she was dealing with some drama between her personal life and the women in it, but she worked well with Parliament. She sort of helped establish the idea of a two-party system, and we do see this continuation of cultural and economic growth in England, so yay, Anne. She wasn't just, my opinion, as interesting or exciting as Charles. That's why she's in third. Then fourth, I'm going to give it to James I. Well, James I did a great job as King of Scotland, and I'm wildly respecting him for that. He kind of dropped the ball in England and created a lot of problems that had long-lasting ramifications. Number five, I'm giving it to Charles I. Normally, getting your head cut off and causing a civil war as king would automatically put you in last place, but Charles doesn't deserve last place because last place goes to... That's right, James II, of course. How could I not? Do you agree with my power rankings of the steward? If so, let me know. If not, let me know. As always, you can reach me at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com, on Twitter, at sadgirlstudypod, and if you like weird, dank history memes that I make, check out the Instagram, at sadgirlstudypod. 
Next time, even though we've wrapped up the official stewards, I'm going to be doing an episode on Sophia of Hanover, who is very nearly queen after Anne, and is kind of a nice bridge between the stewards and the dynasty that came after them, the Hanovers. Until then, please check out the Patreon, become a patron. If you join at $5 a month or more, you get access to fun bi-monthly tangent casts. The newest tangent cast is going to be about the hit film of the favorite and what's true and what's not true and why it truly is the greatest film ever. As always, the best way to help out this podcast is to subscribe to the podcast and let a friend know about it. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and we just got on Spotify, so check us out there. And as always, please read and review the podcast or else all be sad. Thank you.